Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of Banter on the Parkway. We are coming to you on Thanksgiving evening as we record this, and we have a rare opportunity to all be in the same room as we record together, which means that our verbal back and forth may turn into a physical confrontation. Who knows? <laughs> so joining us this week is a man who's taller than Mick Cronin, but still shorter than Charlize Theron. It's Brad. How you doing, Brad? I guess I didn't realize Charlize Theron was taller than me, so She's having learned model. something new today, I guess I'm doing well. I'm over full from the cherry pie. There are actually a lot of adults taller than you, Brad. All right. And here we have uh, Joel. I don't have a, a witty intro for you this week, Joel. I wasted it all on Brad's. That's okay. You could have put that I am taller than Mick Cronin and more voluptuous than Charlize Theron. I have yes. dumps like a truck, 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 and I'm doing great. All right. And joining okay. us, we introduced him on our dispatches this week, but another younger brother, it's Braden. And since we're all together this weekend, Braden is jumping in on our regular recording. So how are you doing right now? Peachy. All right. Sounds great. Well, we have a lot of things to get into, but we're going to start um, at the top with how Xavier got to this point. We're coming off the Charleston Classic, which we covered a little bit in our Monday episode. A couple of wins over <clears throat> over Towson and UConn there before falling in a hard-fought final to Florida. Uh, does anybody have a big takeaway here, or what did we learn at the Charleston Classic? Just real quick, Brad. I think that I mentioned this in the dispatch is the one thing we learned is that this team is tougher than last year's team. We I won't get into all of it again, but basically last year, if Xavier allowed a late run, they tended to fold and lose from there. It happened, I think I counted nine times last season. This season, they've gotten themselves into some tough spots and then fought their way back out of them. That Florida game was a great example of it. You got two bounces off the rim to tie a game that you were down 17 in the second half. Not a win, but they're still shorthanded, which we'll get into later. I think we take away that Xavier's tough this year. I talked last time we recorded about wanting to know what Xavier's identity was, if this is going to be who they are. And I think, like Brad talked about, they have established they're tough, they're defensive-minded, maybe kind of mediocre at offense at times, but uh, what we saw from the first few games was not a mirage. Seven games in, I'm confident in saying this is who the Musketeers are at this point. Yeah, the one thing that I really loved right there at the end of the Florida game, um, I did not love seeing that shot from Scruggs fall off the rim, but they fought so hard to get back in the game. The shot falls off the rim. Scruggs runs in and commits his fifth foul. And right away, Marshall goes and picks him up and, you know, takes him over to the bench. And you can tell he's he's talking to him the whole time, just, you know, letting him know that – um you know, he was a huge part of Xavier coming back in that game and to keep his head up and everything. And I really loved just how quickly they came together to pick up Scruggs in that moment. Um, and it shows the togetherness and, and really just the the leadership that's developed amongst this group with guys like Marshall and, and Gooden and Jones and Scruggs especially. Uh, so what as we look around college basketball as a whole uh Joel is DePaul the biggest surprise team in college basketball this year they they won again and uh they are now 7 and 0 I they're probably not the biggest surprise categorically uh Delaware's up 90 places in the Ken Palm Stephen F Austin's up 77 
And they've got one of the best wins of the young season at Duke in overtime. Uh, but DePaul, I got to tell you, it came out of nowhere for me. I didn't think Dave Lado was a very good hire. I was pretty, uh, pretty direct about that when they hired him. Might have even said never go full retread, but he has built a roster on this team. Kansas transfer Charlie Moore is averaging 16 points a game. Paul Reed is averaging a double-double. Uh, they got five guys averaging at least nine, and they're undefeated. I mean, you can't do any better than that for where we are in the season, 7-0, seven games in. They haven't played a tough schedule, but they got a win at Iowa already, and they've got a roster that really fits well together. Paul Reed's an inside-outside threat, the kind that usually tears Xavier to pieces. Uh, I mean, they're the, the conference's leading collector of five foot eleven point guards with Charlie Moore and Marquise Jacobs. And uh, they, they don't go super deep. Uh, they don't get too many minutes off the bench. They're 305th in the nation in bench minutes. But they got five dudes who can play with just about anybody. I think the last two games, we've learned something about them as well. Of course, two games ago, they were up against Boston College at Boston College. Boston College isn't quite what they were maybe in the early 2000s, um, but Reed only had 11 in that game, but you saw Charlie Moore step up. You saw Romeo Weems step up, and then they were down 18 in the second half against Central Michigan and ended up coming back and actually covering the spread and winning that game by 13 points. Just exploded in the second half. So uh, we've learned two things about them, I think, in the last couple games when they had a little bit of adversity, and both things we've learned about them point to the fact that they are for real, you know, and maybe we're not going to see them um, miss opening night at Madison Square Garden, you know, they'll probably still be down in that uh, 7 to 10 range in the conference standings, but I don't think you can pencil them in at 10th like you used to be able to this year um, and, and be confident that they're going to be holding up the rest of the league table. And you talk about 10th, St. John's has already started to work themselves out of the NCAA tournament. They're 93rd in the Ken Palm. But are we looking at a team, at a conference here that could, and this is early, possibly land nine teams in the tournament? I mean, DePaul is ninth. They're 64. That's not far away from knocking on an at-large spot. Or, like Joel said, they got the horses. They got five guys that can play with anybody. They punch above their weight a little bit. They win that auto bid. You know, Georgetown, Providence, Creighton are the next three teams up, and those are usually at-large bid teams or teams looking for it. I, you mentioned Providence. Let's segue here. Uh, Providence basketball Twitter loves me, and I love them right back, buddy. Uh, but they dropped a, another tough one. You know, they cannot win games at all right now. They're 4-3 and three and still looking for their first top 100 opponent. They've got losses to Northwestern, Penn, and Long Beach State. Penn was at home. Uh, their best win right now is Sacred Heart. Uh, Ed Cooley might have uh, a little bit of a problem on his hands. After that Penn loss, he said he loved this team. He just had one thing he needed to change, and they would be ready to take off. Was that the I, coaching? <laughs> I don't know when he's planning on changing that, but apparently before Long Beach State is not, is not the time. If you look at the win probability chart on that thing, they didn't drop below 95% for more than about 40 seconds of that game, and it just falls off a freaking cliff, and they lost by way of missing or missing a layup at the end after they fouled a three-point shooter who made all three to cough up the game. 
and I mean, you look at that game, you're up 10 with five minutes to go against Long Beach State, who, no matter what way you slice it, is not a good team. They're, what, 280-something in Ken Palm this year. I mean, it's not, it's just not a basketball team that you should lose to if you're up 10 with five minutes to go if you want to make the NCAA tournament. That's all there is to it. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of season left for Providence. Um, as there is for everyone, actually. But this is not uh, a good start, you know. In their first seven games, they've already dropped three, and all three of them are games that you realistically should expect to win, and a couple of them just run away with if you want to be in that at-large big conversation. They have dropped, um, I think, 31 points in Ken Palm, or 31 places in Ken Palm in the last 15 days. Um, that is just a plummet almost akin to their plummet in win probability in their game today, um, but not quite. So, Braden, we'll kick it over to you for a question here. Which is your bigger worry with Xavier, the outside shooting or the turnovers? For me, it's got to be the turnovers. Um, shots may fall, they may not fall, but if you can clean up the stuff that um, we're just giving away at the moment right now, that is going to make up for a lot of lost ground, especially in games like Florida. Um, giving away the ball that many times, um, it's just hard to account for that. Um, shooting threes, that might come around. Taking care of the ball, that's just got to get better immediately. And this team's strength right now is the defense. And one place where they struggle is when they can't get their defense set up. And that happens when they cough the ball up, especially live ball turnovers, you know, where... 150th in the nation right now in uh, steal percentage on offense. So we're giving up a, a good chunk of live ball turnovers. Teams turn those into runouts and into points. Like Braden said, you know, shots going in is obviously ideal, but for whatever reason, it's not what we're built around right now. But if we get those possessions, we don't need to get three points off of them. We just need to get looks. And more importantly, we need to get defensive possessions where we can get back, get five dudes behind the ball, and make teams score on all of us rather than run out and hit wide-open layups. And this team has started to offensive rebound well. It's not fully reflected in their season-wide Ken Palm numbers, but they crushed Florida on the offensive glass. A missed shot you at least have a chance to make up for. Once you've turned the ball over, the other team has it. So i got to kind of piggyback off of what everybody else says. You throw the ball away, it's gone. If you miss a shot, you're at least given a chance for Carter, Freeman, or Jones, somebody to get a hand on it. And get us reset. Another thing I just learned also is that Lorenzo Romar apparently coaches Pepperdine now. Can uh, you pay attention to what great the task segue. at hand? So, <laughs> Pepperdine you. now? Pacific <laughs> School uh, trivia notwithstanding, this team really you know, trades on its toughness with sincerely tough dudes like Zach Fremantle and Tyreek Jones in the middle of the floor. And uh, if we're watching people's backs as they take live ball runs to the bucket after we've turned it over – Ain't no amount of toughness is going to be able to stop that. So if we get in half court, going either way, really, we can get in there and mix it up, and I like our chances against anybody. That kind of feeds into a thing that we've been talking about here around the Thanksgiving table and the night before. It's how Jason Carter fits into this team right now. He's looked a little bit like a guy who is trying to fit into a team, and everybody's been the new guy somewhere, and usually they tell you to just be yourself. Carter looks a lot like a guy who is torn between trying to do what he wants to do and knows he can do and trying to fit in with a new team. He's been 
reluctant to shoot from outside. He made a pretty clear bad decision at the end of the Florida game. He had Quentin Gooden open on the wing after he'd already knocked two straight down. He instead dribbled into a triple team and then tried to thread a pass through it. He looks a little bit out of sync and hasn't quite fit in with Fremantle and Jones and the way they're playing inside, but he keeps getting a lot of run. I, You know, he's got a 98.80 rating right now. His offensive and defensive rebounding percentages were are about what they were at Ohio. The, the one thing that's up for him is turnover rate, and obviously his shooting numbers are way down. Do we need to inspect the fact that this is just what Jason Carter is at the high major level, and he's not going to be able to immediately translate his game from Ohio to Xavier? Or is this a possibility that he just needs to find a way to fit in better than he had been uh, in the previous seven games as we go forward, try to give him a chance to, to be as big a part of this team as we're hoping he would be? I mean, he he, he had 17 when the teams met last year, um, and... I think he had, what, five rebounds, it looks like? Four. Four rebounds. Uh, So, I mean, 17 and four, that's not terrible, uh, especially when he was going against the double post at that point with Jones and uh, Hankins out there. So, uh, you know, he's shown, he showed in the game he played against Xavier last year that he's capable of doing well uh, at a high major level um, against high major players, because he did. Uh, but I, I think he's just struggling to kind of find his footing right now a little, a little bit. And, I mean, he knocked down the two big free throws against UConn. That's probably going to do him some good, uh, although the Florida game was a step back. But I, I think there's reason to look at him and see him as a piece moving forward that can be valuable because he has been valuable in reality already. We're talking about Florida as a step back for him. He played 36 minutes. Five boards, four assists, only five points, but he had an O rating of 108. Are we looking at his usage rate is 10%. Is this a thing where we just need him to increase his usage? Does he have to, to hunt his shots a little bit more? Or is the eye test telling us something different than the numbers are? Maybe we should just be happy with the Jason Carter that we have. I think he needs to look for his shot a little bit more, especially on this team, which towards the end of that game was essentially Paul Scruggs trying to do a lot of the carrying on his own. It, Carter is a good offensive player. He just seems a little bit reluctant to take it on right now. Um, we need some help. Quentin Gooden really stepped up huge, but when the ball went to him and he stepped into that first three-pointer, he looked confident. I can't say that I felt real confident in it. Um, you know, Team we need, leader in three-point shooting percentage, Quentin Gooden. You yeah, that put is. Put some respect on his name, Peter. <laughs> God. Negative Nancy. You know, we need another... Offensive option. Tyreek, you know, needs to be fed to get his, really. A guy who can create a shot or at least spot up. I mean, our kingdom for a shooter at this point, if that's what Carter needs to be. But, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing a usage rate more than 10% out of him. And in that Florida game, Carter had an O rating of 108. Tyreek Jones also had an O rating of 108 with a usage rate of 26%. Q's was 112 on 17%. And then... Sincere tough guy Zach Fremantle led the team in O rating with 136, but he only had a usage rate of 10%, and he only played 13 minutes for reasons that I can't quite understand. He didn't have a turnover problem. I don't think he was getting gashed on defense. But like Brad said, we don't have anybody who can create a shot right now uh, outside of the perimeter guys and maybe Jason Carter. 
So if he starts leaning into that, that might be what the team needs from him. I think maybe another reason for looking at Florida and maybe seeing that as obviously not his best game could also be he played 47 minutes in double OT against UConn. And a lot of those guys also played a lot of minutes in that game. So, I mean, one day in a practice and then you're right back at it again against Florida. I mean, you are not going to have your legs back under you. You're not going to be quite there yet. I mean, that could explain uh, some of the rusty look that he had in that game as well. I mean, I work eight hours every day, man. What's 47 minutes? Yeah, I don't think you've made as many shots in your life as uh, Carter has this year. In Florida, oh, probably not even in that Florida game. He made one, didn't he? He ha- he's made more three pointers this year than you did your career. So be quiet. Florida is—I mean—that is a tough defense. We're we're putting a lot on that one game, which is a small sample size, and that's the 15th ranked defense in the nation. So maybe maybe we can move on from Jason Carter a bit here and say. It's possible that he's a better matchup against Lipscomb than he is a high major team. <laughs> you think? That's the top 15 in D. We will see on Saturday. Um, so we opened it up for you guys to give us some um, questions and your Thanksgiving takes on Twitter. Um, and so this one's from Andrew. He's at bald so hard. Any nuggets on Kiki or Daniel Ramsey? So, Brad, um, what do we know about Kiki Tandy and Daniel Ramsey's status going forward right now. So they should be available to play for the first time uh, Saturday against Lipscomb. I wouldn't expect them to play. I've heard somewhere like 10 to 15 minutes, going to kind of blood them, get them out there on the court a little bit. I'm starting to think, based on a couple of the articles that I've read, that Steele is taking the long look with Tandy, um, waiting, bringing him on slowly, making sure he's going to be completely healthy before he gets out there. I've suggested that we maybe call Daniel Ramsey the forgotten man. Um, everybody on Twitter's when is Tandy back, when is Tandy back, when is Tandy back. I thought Joel did a good job in our last podcast of talking about how Ramsey could actually be a guy who has instant impact. Um, and you guys both mentioned that he's going to be the one that's going to have to uh, step in right away. He has a chance with his shot to make a difference, as does Tandy. Uh, we're going to end up needing them both. We'll see them both against Lipscomb. It would be great if Tandy can take a little bit off of uh, team-leading three-point shooter Quentin Gooden. Maybe we move him off ball and just let him spot up. <coughs> Sniper. I'm not. I'd everybody be likes to see that. Everybody <laughs> likes to pile on Q on Twitter. Um, and so I'm going to refer to him as team-leading three-point shooter Quentin Gooden for the foreseeable future, as long as he holds that stat, uh, because the way everybody else is shooting, I'd say he's probably okay. Yeah, I think him hitting two in a row is probably the best anyone on the team's looked from three so far this season, barring um, barring Bryce Moore's explosion. Uh, so now we have from at KJ Hines a little bit on Demir Bishop. Looks like he's struggling with his shot, and we really need some guys to emerge and knock more down, obviously. Um, we've said that. So, Joel, um, what have you seen about out of Demir Bishop so far, and um, what do we need to see out of him going forward? I like the way Da plays the game. Uh, he, I'd like it a little bit more if he was shooting higher than 14.3% from behind the arc. Mm-hmm. He's shooting 36% from the free throw line. Uh, usually you look at the free throw shooting to, to see if it's shot selection or a bad stroke, but the stroke's clearly there. He's trying to feel his way into it. He's probably getting 
uh, a little bit more depth than he thought he was gonna because of the injuries that we've had and uh of course starting guard Leighton Schrand has disappeared from the lineup for reasons that haven't been explained on social media but uh, Demir is being asked to shoulder a lot as a freshman against uh, or on a team that goes from very deep to very shallow very quickly after we get past the top six my gut tells me he's going to be just fine he knocked in some some big FTs against UConn and against Florida when we were trying to come back he doesn't look like the moment is too big for him he just looks like when he's putting up they're not quite going in uh, obviously playing in high school it's a lower caliber of players he doesn't have to work quite so hard on defense he doesn't have to work quite so hard to get to the positions he needs to be on the floor. So that takes a lot out of a guy. But he looks like he's settling in to me. He looks like a guy who knows what he's trying to do out there, even if it's not working for him right now. I'm not worried too much about Demir, but he's another guy who's going to probably benefit from the Lipscomb and Green Bay games before he gets thrown into the fire uh, in the Crosstown shootout. I love his energy. I mean, he goes out there and just makes his presence felt you know you're never um like is demir bishop out there i mean he's flying around like his hair's on fire he's constantly getting on the floor i love it um you know i would love it more if if his shot was falling and i think once his shot starts falling he's going to be a heck of a player but like you said i really love the way he gets after it out there and uh just you know goes all out on on both ends of the floor um He's just not seeing a lot of success on the offensive end of the floor. And the, the one thing to say about Namir is he is second on the team in defensive rebounding percentage. Tyreek is 21.9. Demir is 20.9. The dude just knows where to go on the basketball court. So that's, I mean, his effective field goal percentage right now is 22.7, which isn't very good. But I'm not too worried because the dude clearly knows what he's doing out there and the game's going to come to him. Okay, um, this is from JH at Zip 'em Up 12. Q's rank as a Xavier PD, PG, sorry. Um, is he D Davis pass first? And I think he wanted us to, to take it back to Lionel Chalmers and rank Q among the point guards since Lionel Chalmers. And as we thought about that, Xavier's had some really good point guards uh, since Lionel Chalmers. Um, so, Joel, you are a, a bit of a point guard aficionado and D. Davis stalker. Um, <laughs> can you uh, cover where Q is going to end up amongst this lineage of, of Xavier point guards that we've seen since 04? I think one of the things Q gets underrated on is his durability. Um, Kiki Tandy, through no fault of his own, has missed some games. Uh, D. Davis even missed a couple games. Obviously, Samaje had some problems when he first got here. Uh, Ed Sumner got Q into the game by getting injured. Uh, that's not a knock on any of these guys, but you look at the grief that Q takes on social media on a regular basis, and I think we underrate the fact that he's the guy who we run out there time and time again. Uh, D. Davis and Two Holloway are a couple guys who also had that. It's hard to say exactly where Q is going to end up because his story isn't quite written yet, and he's a senior point guard on a team that has a chance, if they can put it all together, to make a run that people are going to look back on the way we look on some of the runs, like the one that Lionel Chalmers led, like the one that D. Davis led. And I'm going to go ahead and just keep using the word led for those guys, despite what you think their roles on those teams might have been. 
So uh, there, there are guys that he clearly isn't the peer of statistically as far as what it means to be a point guard. Samaje had that kind of combo guard role, but he carried some teams that were real thin on talent during the, the years that Chris Mack was getting getting acclimated to the high major level as a head coach. Uh, two Holloway's another guy that Q is going to have to do something incredible to pass that I just don't see is going to happen. And D. Davis, um, you're going to put him right up there in the Pantheon as well. Other than that, I think Q's got it all in front of him. He's led the team in assists every year that he's played. Uh, right now, I think he's only behind Najee uh, in that category. But once this team finds its feet, and that's weird to say about a 6-1 and one team, uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking about Q for a while if this team is able to, to put it all together and make a run in the NCAA tournament. I just wanted to throw in that D. Davis was a, a pass-first point guard, but he could shoot a little bit too. He finished his career as a 35% shooter, and that's somewhat weighed down by his freshman year at 29%. Toward the end of his career, as Mick Cronin learned to his chagrin, he could knock down a big shot. Um, you know, UC know. went under a screen, and D. Davis shot himself into history. Q hasn't demonstrated quite that yet, but, I mean, D. wasn't just a pass-first guy. Q has a chance to, I think this year, his defense is maybe stepping in as his second skill that he's bringing to the floor. That was actually the Larry Davis year. Larry Davis coached UC in the shootout that year. You know what, Mick Cronin probably was I, watching. I'm comfortable blaming yeah, Mick can Cronin we not, for that. Why are we trying to take stuff off of Mick Cronin? I'm just saying. I heard UCLA got demoted to a D2 school this year. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you think of Q, you know, growing into that defensive guy. I think of Stan Burrell. He came in as a freshman and looked for all the world like he was going to be the next big thing as far as scorers go. And never really exploded the way I was hoping that he would. But he was an eraser on the defensive end. And Quentin Gooden is leaning, leading a lot of really tough defenders, and he more than does his part right now. If he keeps up that effort, and this team ends up being one of the best defensive teams we've seen in the Ken Palm era for X, that might be the end of, the end of the floor on which he writes his legacy. So, kind of going back into the Xavier Annals, I guess that prompted the question, who is your favorite uh, Xavier backcourt ever. We'll go ahead um, and start with Braden because he's actually the one who posed us the question on Twitter. Uh, for me personally, gotta be uh, Holloway and Crawford. Um, not any statistical reason to back this up other than I watched them when they I got was... buckets. Yes, <laughs> watched them when I was nine years old. Super fun to watch. Uh, a lot of memories made. The K State game springs immediately to mind for the two of them. Uh, oh, their shootout was amazing, too. The shootout yeah. that year, uh, the game, uh, his Crawford's layup against Minnesota in the first round of the tournament that year, him destroying Pittsburgh. Um, for me, that that's why I picked them. A lot of great memories from a backcourt that only lasted one season. Brad, uh, who do you got? I'm going to go all the way back to Gary Lumpkin and Lenny Brown, which is kind of where Joel and I got our start um, playing in the hallway at the house we're not recording in right now. That made it sound like we have two houses. We're not quite that athletic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was always Gary Lumpkin. He was Lenny Brown because he could actually put the ball into the hoop, which was a huge advantage. Even in hall basketball, you have to imaginarily score against people, and that's something I struggled to do. But Gary Lumpkin, Lenny Brown, uh, they're always the guys for me. Um, yeah, when we get back to our alternate residence after we summered <laughs> in the Hamptons, Brad and I would get back into the college basketball season uh, once the equestrian arts had had passed us by, <laughs> and it was 
Gary Lumpkin and Lenny Brown, and they gave us one of the signature moments in the program's entire history where Lenny Brown uh, put the dagger in UC to make him number one in the country and number two in their own city. That was obviously a seminal moment for the program, but it's one of the, the early memories that I have of watching these guys play. And then we go out there and reenact that ad infinitum in the hallway until one of our parents bothered to put us to bed. I think we made Dad be like Alonzo Mourning or something. I'm not even sure that like our generational teams fit, but he had to be a big because we were like nine and seven or something like that. And we Gary got Lumpkin shot 40% from three his first two years in school. I know, but... He was an amazing shooter. I couldn't do that, so I had to pretend I was passing. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Gary, say no more. Gary, if you're listening, just forget everything Brad just said and concentrate on the fact that you're half of our favorite backcourt ever. <laughs> Lumpkin, with a rare show of restraint, passes again. All right, I'm going to go with, uh, I think, a classic Xavier backcourt and, and certainly one that um, has always stuck out in my mind. Drew Lavender and Stan Burrell, um, yeah. despite... Apparently, Stan underwhelming Joel. Uh, he is my favorite Xavier Musketeer of all time. And uh, I just loved the way they played together because they played off each other so well. And there were a lot of backcourts that I got a lot more press that they just ate alive. You know, especially that Indiana game when Stan Burrell just took Eric Gordon completely out of the game and Xavier mopped the floor with the Hoosiers. Um, I loved watching those two play together. Obviously, the West Virginia game is for a lot of us um, one of our favorite, if not our favorite, game in Xavier history. And those guys were both a huge part of that victory. But uh, you look at the BYU game uh, in the tournament, um, just that entire run that, that they were able to put together over the two years they were together um, as one of my favorite backcourts in Xavier history, but apparently not the best backcourt in the Atlantic 10, according to Atlantic 10 coaches, which Stan pointed out at Media Day, which made me love him more. <laughs> um, I just, I loved watching those two guys play together. Um, Drew Lavender was tiny. I was tiny. And I was like, all right. Um, Drew Lavender could like dribble a basketball and play defense. Um, I don't know if I could play defense. Never tried. So. <laughs> I just want to say in my defense, Stanley Brill averaged 12.7 points as a freshman, and I was pretty sure he'd end up averaging like 50 at some point in time. And uh, he ended up averaging 9.7 as a senior. So On a I, team with way more weapons. I've got big love yeah, for like everything Josh Stan Duncan. did for the program. I'm just saying he didn't turn into the dynamite go-to scorer that I thought he was going to turn into. Let's Stan, not turn this into an actual fight. Stan, if you're listening... Um, this is Brian. I'm your biggest fan. That was Joel. He's a hater. <laughs> so, Speaking of stuff we hate. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Our last quick hits here. What is the worst Thanksgiving dish? Joel. Ah, stuffing is the absolute worst, especially if it has celery in it. Ooh. Bonus points for pumpkin pie being a garbage dessert. Leave that gourd on the front porch. Carve a face in it. <laughs> I'm going to go with green bean casserole or sweet potato casserole, really Thank any sort you. of casserole. I mean, if, if you can't cook, you make a casserole. Don't bring that to the Thanksgiving. Please, oh, <laughs> don't bring that to the Thanksgiving table. I thought we were going for hot takes here. Oh, that's blistering. Also, pumpkin pie. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who decided to scoop the guts out of that thing and then bake it, but no. I love that we say worst Thanksgiving dish, and you guys are like, well, I'm going to say five <laughs> with the first two people. I'll go with just one. agree. Brussels sprouts. They're terrible. Oh, 
What? And yeah. they, they were cut terribly today. Oh, my word. <laughs> Rest in peace, Braden. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dumbest thing that's ever been said on our podcast. We're sorry, everybody. Um, Let's see if we can top it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go for it right about now. Uh, no, I'm actually going with sweet potatoes as well. Those things are nasty. Um, we should leave them in the ground, let them rot, and That's fertilize in the room. If good we could potatoes. Get to go steak. We could maybe throw turkey as worst Thanksgiving dish and big stack of steaks. Good. Yeah, the turkey, turkey was, was sweet. Was solid this year. My son thought it was steak. Not a real sharp kid. Oh. All right. Uh, this one's from Johnny M on Twitter. If I already <laughs> ate too much and already drank too much, do I keep eating or keep drinking, Joel? Uh, Johnny M, the answer is yes. My Wait friend. a minute. Wait a minute. He's also said hashtag. Asking for a friend, hashtag happy Thanksgiving 2019. Well, Johnny, tell your friend, keep eating and keep drinking, and whichever one makes you throw up first was the winner, and all those calories become guilt-free. That's right, Johnny. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might get trampled at Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) That's my motto on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Okay, and uh, finally, this is going to stir some controversy here, and this is where the physical altercation may happen. So if you miss the Jerry Springer show, Perk up your ears. Crunchy or creamy peanut butter, Brad, you moron. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with crunchy because creamy peanut butter has like the texture of snot. God, what a homonkloid. Joel, (laughs) go ahead. Um, Apparently Brad eats enough snot on a regular basis that he recognizes the texture. It was was foreign to me. No. No. Leave it in. Leave it in. Here's the point. You You don't put peanut butter on something for the textural element, okay? You put it on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which is designed to have a specific texture that's Jelly's ruined by crunch, too. or you dip apples in it, and the apple provides the crunch. The peanut butter is the flavor element, not the textural element. Brad doesn't know anything about anything, and that's why God cursed him to be short. Wow. Jeez. That is true. That's it's very harsh. telling that mom and dad Killed had off. five more of us after they met you because they just assumed they could do better. Penance, we refer to that as. And arguably they did. So that's what we have for this week. Xavier's going to be back in action on noon on Saturday. We are going to hopefully have this podcast out to you by then for all your Black Friday shopping. So everybody stay safe, get some great deals, and we will talk to you next week.